Hey, I'm Holly from Massachusetts. I'm James from Salt Lake City. I'm Jason R. Wallace from America's Georgia in these United States. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced independently and supported by listeners like you and me. You should support the show like I did. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. I'm Jesse Thorne. When it comes to singers, Dolly Parton, she's just as good as it gets. Jolene, 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 Jolene. She's been through it all and she knows just when to summon the right emotion. I've written some of the saddest songs when I was at my happiest. It's Bullseye. This week, I talk with Dolly Parton about her life, what it was like growing up poor in the Great Smoky Mountains as the fourth of 12 children. People say, well, you didn't have toys. What would you play with? I said, we played with each other. We found tons of stuff to do. But first, Judd Apatow will talk about his new comedy, This Is 40. Some of the movie's details are based, loosely, he'll tell you, on his own relationship with his wife. What is the glue that's keeping us together? And ultimately, it is you know, the great love that people have for each other. Plus, Jason Reese from the rock band And You Will Know Us by The Trail of Dead reveals the Fugazi song that changed his life. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. Every week on Bullseye, we're joined by some of our favorite culture critics to recommend stuff worth your time. This week, it's comic books with our comic book critics, Alex Zalbin of MTV Geek and Brian Heater of Boing Boing. Hey, guys. How's it going? Great. Awesome. Alex, uh, tell me a little bit about your recommendation this week, Tune the Vanishing Point by Derek Kirk Kim. Sure. This is a graphic novel. It's uh, volume one uh, of a proposed graphic novel series coming out of first second. And I'm almost hesitant to say anything about it. I mean, I'll give you the pitch of the book. It, you know, this kind of ruins it. But the, the pitch of the book <laughs> is there's this guy. He's a slacker art student. And he ends up, in order to make money, selling himself to an alien human zoo. The thing that I actually loved about the book, I, I ruined that because it tells you that on the cover and the back page, and that's you know the art of the whole thing and how they're selling it. That doesn't happen until like the last five pages of the book. <laughs> uh, the rest of it is a really cute uh, graphic novel, sort of almost exactly what you'd expect about uh, an artist who's very rudderless. He's in love with this girl named Yummy or Yumi. I don't know how to pronounce it. And he's uh, wandering through life until he ends up meeting these aliens who take him to a zoo where now he works. Uh, so it's almost all leading up to that joke. And I think that's what I enjoyed about it. You enjoyed that the whole thing was a setup for the joke on the last page. I can assume you're also a fan of the episode of The Twilight Zone where... Oh, wait. Every episode of The Twilight Zone? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm a fan of that every episode of The Twilight Zone. I mean, honestly, that's what it plays like, except as an indie graphic novel, and that's part of the fun of it. You know, Derek Kirk Kimmy is really good at observing how people act. I'm sure he was a struggling art student at some point himself. So all of that stuff works really nicely, and it works as a book, and then you get that ridiculous twist at the end that sets you up for the next volume and makes you want to read more. Brian, tell me a little bit about John Porcellino's King Cat, the 73rd issue of which was just released. 
Yeah, I, I mean, I think uh, I think as a rule, I would be a little bit hesitant to recommend the seventy third issue of anything. But uh, you know, it's it's easy enough to just sort of pick up on this. And this is a comic that uh, John Porcellino has been doing since he's a teenager, uh, according to Wikipedia. At least he's he's forty four years of age right now, so he's been doing this since uh, since nineteen eighty nine, which I think pretty easily, at least so far as. Uh, so far as I've seen, is is hands down the longest running uh, mini comic out there. It, it, it's mostly autobiographical stuff, and it, you know, certainly it's uh, certainly it's changed a lot throughout the years. So, what's special about King Cat relative to every other autobiographical indie comic book out there besides its longevity? It's sort of a quiet. Um, you know, I, I I don't know if I, I necessarily want to use meditative to describe it, but it seems pretty apt. It's he, He's very minimalistic in, in his artwork. It's also pretty minimalist in its storytelling, and I think that's really if anything, a result of the fact that he's been doing this since uh, since 1989. You know, he's really, he's figured out a way to work it down to its bare essentials, and um, you know, I think that, I think we're better for that. Brian Heater recommends King Cat by John Porcellino. Alex Zalbin recommends Tune Vanishing Point by Derek Kirk Kim. Alex, Brian, thank you so much for joining us on Bullseye, as always. Thanks for having us on again. Thanks a lot, Jesse. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest Judd Apatow might be the most successful man in film comedy. He's put his stamp on more than 50 film and television shows. His productions include Anchorman, Superbad, and Bridesmaids. His work as a director includes Funny People, Knocked Up, and The 40-Year-Old Virgin. When he was writing on The Larry Sanders Show, Gary Shandling told him that writing was about characters encountering obstacles to love. He's made that theme the centerpiece of his new film, This is 40. The leads, Paul Rudd and Leslie Mann, who's Apatow's wife off-screen, fight and claw against their middle-class lives and their children and each other. There's no bad guy, just a personal struggle to find peace and love. And also there's a lot of great jokes. Here's a scene where Debbie and Pete are going through a particularly rough patch of their marriage and they stop to reflect on their current feelings for one another. Why do we fight? I don't know. It makes no sense It makes all. no sense. And you get so mad at me. Oh, I, my god! I gosh. feel like you want to kill me. I do want to kill you. How would you do it? I don't know. I poison you. I poison your cupcakes that you pretend not to eat every day and just put, like, enough in to just slowly weaken you. I love it. I would enjoy our last few months together. Me too. Because you'd be so weak and, like, sweet and I could take care of you and but while killing you. See? You know what I love about us? You can still surprise me. I figured for sure you'd knock me out with one fell swoop of poison, <laughs> but you would extend it over a series of months. Have you ever thought about killing me? Oh, yeah. Really? Sure. How would you do it? Wood chipper. A wood chipper? Yeah. A wood chipper? Yeah. Wow. I know. Did you see Fargo? Yeah. <laughs> well, Judd Apatow, welcome back to the show. It's good to be back. I don't know if this is everyone's reaction to the film because um, I haven't talked to a lot of people who've seen it, but I found it exceptionally emotionally tortuous. <laughs> um, and it may just be because I had a child recently and or not that long ago, and now I feel everything way more intensely than I ever expected to. Exactly. What's the what's the deal with that? <laughs> no one ever tells you that. You know, when you think about having a kid, you think, oh man, we're gonna have to like wake up at night and do diapers. No one ever explains 
that emotionally it just whoops you upside the head, especially for a man, because you go from being what you think is a number one in your household to instantly number three and a really <laughs> low number three. Uh, and you kind of have a, a like a quiet breakdown about the change from complete egomania to serving somebody else and serving your wife who's working usually much harder than you and expects more from you. And that's what Knocked Up was about. And in a way, This is 40 is, is you know, it's the next stage of that. You know, you only get to spend your life, you know, uh, unless you're Elizabeth Taylor with one person. Uh, and you do go through your life going, you know, did we make the right choice? Are we just together because we have, have this family? Like, what is the glue that's keeping us together? And ultimately, it is, you know, the great love that people have for each other. But the obstacles mentally are so enormous and uh, uh, it's hard to stay sane as a person when you're spinning all of those plates. But your this period of your life was also the period of your life where your film career really took off, right? I mean, it's like 10 years ago, 12 years ago that you started doing films and um, your oldest daughter is like 13 or 14, right? Yes, Maude was born uh, in 97, and we did Freaks and Geeks in 99. Uh, so, yeah, I was 30 when we had our first child. And, you know, it's also a weird moment because you feel like I have to make a living. Now I have these beings mm-hmm. and there's, you know, the fear of the cost of school and and uh, and everything that comes along with it. And, oh, I guess we need like a house that like a family could live in. So you're in the middle of this moment. That's, you know, it's real hunter-gatherer time, but you're, all, you're also trying to be there emotionally for someone else who's going through it as an emotional time. But it's hard to split your brain, you know, and, and come home after, you know, doing your battles all day long and just drop it and sit and, you know, watch SpongeBob and play with toys for hours and hours, not thinking about that person at work you want to murder. Uh, there's, it, a, there's a moment in This is 40 where Paul Rudd, who's the husband of the family, and his character runs a record label, is destroyed about the lack of financial success of a record that his label just put out. Mm-hmm. He go, goes over to, the, to his signee, who's a, a veteran, who's yes. completely unbothered by it, and, and he tells Paul Rudd, Oh, you should uh, you should just have a small nut. That's the yes, secret. Exactly. Just don't have a lot of expenses. Yeah. <laughs> and the the sort of burning rage in <laughs> in Paul Rudd's eyes as yeah. he hears that you know perfectly reasonable, mm-hmm. but so completely incompatible with a life where you have a family and you know, especially if this you know in Paul Rudd's case, an yeah. upper middle class family, but and dreams of keeping a. An upper middle class lifestyle. It's uh, you know a lot of people are scaling down, and that's what some of the movie is about. Is you know everyone is looking at it like, oh, this oh, my budget just doesn't really work anymore. And how how big are my dreams? And when you get to that age, you know the it, you have to consider whether or not uh, your your kind of employment plan is going to work. So you know, Paul has a record. You know, Paul has a record label. And it's kind of like the type of music I like, which is he, has, he loves all these indie bands. So, you know, uh, 
he he has it's a Paul Pixies w- T-shirt intensive yeah. record label. It's a very Husker Du world. He's mm-hmm. he's trying to keep alive and putting out the new work of those artists who all do deserve to be heard, even though they're not Rihanna. And that's something I'm, I've always been sympathetic to as a fan of Loudon Wainwright and Warren Zevon and and people that don't sell millions and millions of records, but who you know to me are authentic, important voices. Uh, but it doesn't work as a business model. And one of the ideas in the movie is, you know, when you get in, in your 40s, you kind of stop listening to new music. And if you're in the music business, it is a sign of your, uh, you know, coming uh, old age. Like, oh, my God, I actually don't know the new bands on the radio. And it, and that's what's giving him a nervous breakdown. He's the guy that didn't like Arcade Fire. Uh, as a metaphor for getting older and thinking, am I going to lose touch? Am I even going to be able to hold this job anymore? Because I'm, I'm falling out of sync with uh, young people. Did you did you have a moment like that yourself? Well, I've had this strange thing where everything I did in the early part of my career was more cult like and would be canceled instantly. And I thought, am I never going to connect with a larger group of people? And that's happened for me uh, more as I've gotten older. So I've had a little bit of the reverse of that. But as a comedy person, it's always in the back of your mind, oh, one day I might get really out of touch and unfunny, but I'll still think I'm funny. Most people, like you'll meet like older comedians and some of them are so on their game and it's so awesome to sit with people and watch them stay funny forever. But some of them aren't. And you think, what if I'm that guy who thinks he's funny and he hasn't been for like a really long time that it, I could literally lose sleep at night at, at, at that idea. I, I want to ask you about um, your wife and your relationship with your wife, because she's the star of the film. Um, and I, where, where did you meet her? How, how did you, the two of you fall in love. I met Leslie. I, I was uh, producing the cable guy, and she came in to audition for the movie. And it was a funny week because I would read Jim Carrey's part, and I would do a lisp, and and all day I'm just reading with J Lo and Salma Hayek and Heather Locklear. Does Were you it, doing Jim Carrey? Were yes, you I'm Jim like Carrey? yeah, I'm like reading that his part. Exhausting. Uh, yeah, at the auditions, and so it's kind of like super fun to to you know to get to read with all of these people. Uh, and and then Leslie came in one day, and I afterwards I just turned to Ben and I said, "That's that's so weird that." Mrs. Appetite would just walk in and just sit next to me like that. It's just so bizarre. <laughs> and and then I said about stalking her. I'm kind of still stalking her, really, when you get down to it. Uh, and then a few months later, um, we uh, became a couple. Tell me about wh- when you became a couple. What what did she what did she see in you? Uh, I think she know? saw me as uh, as a nice person. I mean, she as she tells the story, we were on our way to, uh, to a laker game or coming back uh, on our first date and it just occurred to her oh that's who i'm supposed to date i'm supposed to date guys like this not like the jerks i've been dating what, what did you like about her besides i mean she's a movie star good looking but uh the fun thing about leslie i mean she she's the most uh, in tune person i know she's almost psychic she's a real feeler and uh she's like hilarious and very uh, you know, she pulls you into the present moment. You know, as a writer, there's a part of me that can be very 
detached and observing of things. And she's very alive and feels all of her emotions all of the time. And is a you know and 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 in the work we have a great time together. It's very challenging. We will get passionate and and fight. Uh, and she can be a challenging person because she sees so much. She like. She's the one that will watch the movie at the end and point out everywhere where she feels a false beat. And at that point, I'm so mad. I'm like, really? Like, you don't like that scene? And and she's always correct. So um, – and she's also a beautiful person and, and beautiful in, in a way uh, – she's the kind of person that doesn't realize how beautiful she is. She's uh, gorgeous yet insecure. I don't know if I could live with a really cocky, gorgeous person. <laughs> <laughs> you briefly dated J-Lo. <laughs> it was just diva this, diva that. Yeah. I mean, it's you know, our life has been interesting because we've had a fun couple of years. Uh, and as someone who came from a background where, you know, my family had a lot of financial problems, I'm, I'm, I always, you know, f- feel nervous and I have to be on my game or everything's going to go away and Leslie's much more willing to say we need to prioritize on the kids and and our family and uh, it's that's like a very important voice for me to have. It's a scary thing to try and balance when you're a dad. I I feel that very intensely now. Yeah. That part where you feel like it's your job to go out and and make a living for everyone and everything's always on the precipice of collapse. Yes. Um, yeah. And, and you but, have to leave the house to do it. Yeah. So you feel guilt for leaving. So you're trying to do this thing for everyone. And then you feel like a jerk because you're out, you know, going to a club or going to a screening. It's, it's, and it's for actresses. It's even worse. Cause she, Leslie could get a call. Oh, you need to be in new Orleans for a few months. And Leslie will turn down the work most of the time. Uh, but uh, because she doesn't want to be gone. How did the your relationship with your wife change when you had kids? It's uh, well, it, it, you know, the, it's very different when you're just kind of goofing off and, and having fun and and having this gigantic responsibility. And suddenly, there's like human life in the room, and you're listening in the middle of the night to make sure your daughter's breathing. Uh, I mean, that's that is a cliche, but that is the level of intensity of being a parent. And so suddenly your partner's in this enormous endeavor. And so it, it, it changes everything. And you have to work hard to keep your relationship uh, also equally as important because, uh, you know, th- you got to get the kids to school. You got to get them to, uh, you know, their play dates. You got to get them to their classes. You got to make sure they don't fail uh, with their school. And, and, and that can take up every second of your life. There are these moments in the film that I, I really identified with that are about this couple going through these horrible, you know, intense conflicts with each other and having these moments where they have to check in with each other to make sure that they still yes. love each other yes. and want to be together. Mm-hmm. Um have you had moments in your life where you have had that the fear that drives that like oh no there's something wrong here well it's different for Leslie and I because Leslie and I are creative people which is driven by enormous insecurity 
So there's never a day where I don't think Leslie's just going to jump out the window and run for the hills. <laughs> I don't understand why she's married to me. Like as a person, I never get comfortable that everything will be okay. There's a hyper vigilance there that is completely irrational as a result of just being, you know, from a family that got divorced in a very uh, dramatic way with a lot of fighting. And so there's a, it's hard for me to feel really stable. I never, I don't feel that way in the, in my career either. I always think, you know, I'm always just two bombs away from being done. And, uh, and I have to work really hard to fight against that. And that's a little bit about a little bit, you know, in the movie where, you know, when they get into like crazy conflicts, they take it all the way to, was all of this a mistake? Uh, and it isn't because the movie is about, you know, the ebb and flow of a marriage where you can go from like the best times ever and the next day it just goes to your worst, most insecure place where you're bringing all your baggage from how you were raised into this relationship. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Judd Apatow. His new movie is called This is 40. In this scene from the movie, the protagonist, Pete, and his friend Barry, who's played by Robert Smigel, ogle Megan Fox's character, Desi, in the pool, and their wives stand nearby, taking in the whole scene. So, uh, so that's the girl who works, uh, so that's the girl who works for you. Yeah, that's her. Works for Debbie. Seems nice. Uh, my wife would never let me have a hot employee like that. Yeah? No. Every woman who works for us uh, looks like they've been in some kind of horrible accident. Are you comfortable with that around your husband? Oh, Pete wouldn't know what to do with that. You think our wives are looking at us right now? Oh, definitely. Yeah. They look like pedophiles. There's this basic structure for a sitcom, which is there's a family of some kind and something upsets the family and the story is about resolving that upset and getting back to the mm-hmm. point where you can start a new episode of the show. And um, in a lot of ways, that's kind of what This Is 40 is about, mm-hmm. um, which I think is a little bit... Well, while this movie has similar themes to some of the movies that you've made before, I think in the past you've had giving birth, losing virginity, uh, facing death as these huge um, events that drive the film. There's no huge event that drives this film. Were you nervous about (laughs) making a movie that didn't have a part where, you know, they have to get to the hospital before, Mm -hmm. oh, 1,200 hours or the heart would explode? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that was the the tricky part because I wanted to do a movie that was just a slice of life and to show that people are spinning so many plates that we're all on the verge of a meltdown. There's just too many things to try to get right between being a husband and a father and trying to stay healthy and trying to help my kids with their school and dealing with politics and all the stuff that's happening in, in the media and, and – all the pressure to deal with your larger extended family. Like we're all trying to do it correctly and it is too much. Like no one can do it. And that is, I think, bringing us all to the point of meltdown a fair amount of the time. So I thought, well, that's just what I want to write about is how normal life 
can just kick your ass. And I thought it was it's funny too because when people start snapping, it makes me laugh. Like I like I like showing terrible communication <laughs> skills. You know that you could love someone so much and just be the worst fighter and say the most hurtful thing. <laughs> I mean that's what makes me laugh and and it is about reestablishing your commitment to someone. That it doesn't really matter how much they fight. They're not going anywhere. You know when they get into a fight, no one gets in the car they you cut to the next scene and they're eating breakfast with their kids hating each other and that is what life is like when you're fully committed and it's heightened this isn't like what our you know everyday life is like it is meant to be dramatic and funny uh you know so it it's it the reality level is um you know us on our worst days <laughs> i think it's a kind of a comedy guy thing to think that something that's really funny is uh, people who are uh, at the height of their most upset and angry. Yes, yes. It's sort of. It's also sort of a, a, a generational aesthetic. I mean, if yeah. I if I think of um, Adam Sandler mm-hmm. or Will Ferrell, yeah. you know, they're probably the two biggest comedy yeah. movie stars of my adulthood. Mm-hmm. Um, those are both guys where much of their humor comes from. It being funny when they are at their most upset. When they lose their mind. I mean, the first sketch that people saw Will Ferrell in on the first episode was him, like, at a barbecue just screaming to get off the (laughs) shed. Get off the shed! And (laughs) that always makes me laugh. Like, I I think that people, my therapist used to call it getting fragmented, but people going off the rails is always amusing to me. And what comes out when you stop censoring yourself and all your little demons start talking directly to the other person? Everything you should keep quiet spills. I, you know, I like those kinds of scenes. And I think in the history of romantic comedies and movies, uh, a lot of times people are trying to smooth out the rough edges and make relationships seem really creamy and romantic. Uh, but like I used to love 30-something. I thought that was kind of a fantastic show. The movie Parenthood was a big influence as well. Um but but I also like things like scenes from a marriage or Cassavetti's movies where it, it goes all the way into painful truth. When you when you go as far as you go, what are the ugly things that spill out of you? Uh, I my whole thing is about feeling demonized. You know, when I was a kid, my parents got divorced, and my mom really was mad, and she didn't even understand why I talked to my dad, uh, just due to just you know her pain in a divorce. And I always felt demonized. So in any situation, I'm always like saying, uh, I didn't do anything wrong. <laughs> I'm always just like, you know, I feel like someone's – It doesn't. it's not about even marriage. It could be dealing with a network or a studio. That's my issue, which is like, I'm a good guy. I'm trying. You know, I always go to that. There's some of that in the movie with Paul. You know, I'm doing the best I can. I don't hurt anybody. And it's that, that it's, And I think that's a very old – emotions that always come out i I feel like uh i don't like being like defined as if i have bad intentions you know it's 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 funny you say that because what that makes me think of is you know i think there are these people who are in comedy because they have this um they have a specific beef with the world that they need to share um and you know that could be at least that could be george carlin you know maybe the greatest stand-up comedian (laughs) of all time but um, uh, then there's this this other thing of like I'm what you were just describing, and it must have been really tough for you when as that kind of guy, as a guy who's not necessarily 
on a mission to do this specific thing and can always fall back on that to have like you know when when people when there was all this talk about your movies being sexist a couple years ago mm-hmm. or when girls was when people were all yeah. talking about the lack of ethnic characters on mm-hmm. uh, or not white characters on girls like both of those things feel like they yes. fit right into that <laughs> yeah well that's what's weird about being an actress or being a you know a, a writer or a director is you're you always have this strange thing where you're very sensitive you have trouble taking criticism and then you go into a field where people tear you a new <laughs> butthole constantly and now with the internet at any moment of the day i can have somebody tell me to f off on twitter on a message board if i look for it i could find a way to be insulted all the time uh, and when you're doing creative work and when you're taking risks you got to assume that a third of the time or at least a third of the people don't get it just like i don't love every uh Julio Iglesias record, and there are people that adore it. Yeah, like some um, Julio Iglesias records. I like records a, some of love. it. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> um, that it's fine for people to disagree about the value of music and movies and TV. There are great TV shows that I, you know, I, I'll watch and go. I don't. know, I can't get into that, and it may win Emmys all the time. I just like I don't know, whatever. That's just not connecting for me. And so when people talk about the work, you do have to live through that period where people go, well, "This is." This is sexist. And you're like, really? Isn't it a story? Isn't it the most anti-sexist story of all time by starting a guy being, you know, uh, an immature guy and by the end he's just reading baby books? I mean, if anything, it's lame in the other direction. Uh, uh, you know, the, it is a lesson learned. And so you, you could always find people to do a misread of it. Um, and maybe in their mind it's correct and maybe it isn't a misread. It's just, it's just how they're subjectively interpreting it. It's the same thing with girls. I went to high school. We had one African-American uh, guy in our high school. So if I wrote a story about high school, uh, uh, am I wrong for not having half or a third of the people be African-American? Like what is, you know, what is expected of me in terms of just expressing my truth uh, of what I've experienced? Um, so that, you know, all those issues can be debated all day long. And that's, I think, the fun of girls, which is – are they annoying? Are they self-entitled? Are, you know, uh, what do we think about it? Well, we're making the show so you can fight about it. I mean, it's a, it's a very uh, – uh, you know, it's the, the entire point of it. Like what do you make of the, these girls and the mistakes that they're making? And, and I told Lena everything people would say about her before the show aired. I said, here's the criticism. Here's the blogs. You want them? Here's the six blogs. So nothing shocked us. And I kind of like it. Like, you know, I think it, that's the, the point of it. After a break, more with Judd Apatow on his new movie, This Is 40. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Production of Bullseye is supported in part by MailChimp. With email newsletters and social media integration, MailChimp is like your own personal publishing platform. Use it to share your message with the world. Dear David, happy 11th anniversary. I love you. Love, Elizabeth. Online at MailChimp.com. Bullseye is supported by Thing X, the new comedy site featuring original comedy videos and articles created by Adult Swim and former writers from The Onion. Check out Thing X now for an interview with Paul F. Tompkins, movie reviews from Tim Heidecker and Greg Turkington, insane how-to videos, and more. All at ThingX.com. 
It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the writer, director, and producer Judd Apatow. He's the man behind many of the comedy blockbusters of the last decade or so. His new movie follows a few of the characters from his previous film, Knocked Up. The new one's called This Is 40. You have two uh, daughters who are both in this movie. They're both great in the movie. Um, I, you know, when <laughs> when your children acted in your films previously, it was a sort of like, uh, it, it was very small roles where you could just be like, well, then they get to be around and yes. I get to see my children. <laughs> yes. Um, this is actual acting for both of them, um, especially your elder daughter, Maud. Um, would you be, and they're good at it, would you be happy for them to be actresses? The hard part is that I create such a good environment for this type of creativity. It's really scary thinking of them going to work for somebody else and knowing they may not be treated as well or or that the creative situation may be more shut down. I, I mean, I, I don't approach working with my kids any differently than working with Albert Brooks. The, you know, I rehearse with them. I talk it through with them. We we shoot the scene. We I, terrified I get, of them because they're great geniuses <laughs> yeah, of comedy. Exactly, exactly, I am scared of them. I uh, and and so I don't know that, that many environments where people are part of the process in that way. So that's what scares me the most is they could be great with me, and then someone else says, "No, you have to do every line exactly this way." And it's painful to watch friends who are actors or actresses be in bad movies, bossed around with people who aren't super nice. Uh, that's that's a hard part about acting. That's why I encourage people to write because I think that it's it's so much more important to control your destiny. I mean, it would break my heart like uh, to think of of uh, of them being mistreated somewhere. I don't know if they want to do it or not. They are very good at it, and and they're hilarious and interesting. And I always have to ask people. I'm not crazy, right? My kids are really good because you never know if you're just the insane person who puts your kids in the movie and quietly everyone's behind your back going like, what is he doing? Uh, but, you know, Maude gets applause breaks in movie theaters in the middle of the movie uh, and that's been really fun to watch. But I didn't want her to get offered other work so I, now I have to deal with that. <laughs> I just didn't want to humiliate her with her being in a bad movie. I, didn't, I wasn't looking to start the resume. There's one other thing that's completely unrelated to your new film, This Is 40, which is in theaters December 21st. It's very important to me. Yes. Um, you recently uh, adopted Pee Wee Herman. Um, yes. <laughs> my, f- my favorite thing ever. Yes. Um, and uh, hired a, a friend of mine, uh, the very funny Paul Rust, to w- work on it. Mm-hmm. Um, what, what's up with... Uh, well, he wrote... A, a, a fantastic uh, script with Paul Rust, and now we're just you know trying to get someone to give us you know enough money to do it properly. It's very big and imaginative, and requires some cash to. Do you to think get that actually well. might happen? Uh, I hope so. I mean, he's into you know he's very active right now, Paul Rubens. Uh, I think he's had periods where he's he's worked really hard, and periods where he's relaxed a little bit. And I think he's in a in a very creative mode, and a lot of things are happening for him. And people have certainly re embraced him in a big way. He, I mean, he's so funny; it's crazy. And to sit in a room with him and have him pitch ideas for Pee Wee Herman, and to hear how he thinks about it. Is, has been one of the greatest experiences I've ever had because I don't know of almost anything that makes me laugh harder than that. I mean, seeing that show live a couple of years ago, uh, 
I don't, I mean, it re- my wife lost it. I've never seen her literally lose it where like she's laughing and she can't stop and you worry for her health. I mean, he, that's what he's, he, he does. Seeing that show, I was like, this really is the most important thing to me. Like this, I'm overwhelmed. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I just edited the, uh, the January issue of Vanity Fair and I, I wanted to do a photograph of all of the people that I look up to. And so that was Gary Shandling, Roseanne, James L. Brooks, Norman Lear, David Milch, and Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman. And it's the greatest photo of all of them together. But that's, you know, these were my big influences. For... These are all crazy people, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that's what ties them together. <laughs> you need some madness to do that work at that level. Okay, well, um, I'm going to check my bank balance, see if I've got a couple extra $10 million to send your way. I will do a Kickstarter for your $10 million. (laughs) I need one pledge of $10 million from you. (laughs) Well, thanks, Judd. Thank you so much. Good to be back. Judd Apatow's new movie is called This is 40. It opens in theaters December 21st. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Jason Reese is the drummer and sometime frontman of the band, and you will know us by the Trail of Dead. The band's songs are intense, awash in loud noises, and performed with complete control. Their newest record is called Lost Songs. Here's a little bit of Catatonic. Back when he was a teenager, Reese lived in Hawaii with his family. He was passionate about music, but he felt stuck. You know, I was kind of caught in sort of one world. I was listening to a lot of stereotypical punk music from, you know, the 80s, uh, Dead Kennedys, Black Flag, Sex Pistols, Ramones. He walked into a record store in Hawaii called Jellies. They had so much vinyl, they had everything there. He saw a new release called 13 Songs by the band Fugazi. I love the, the way the cover looked. It was all red and it looked intense. The first song on the record, Waiting Room, changed his life. After that, it was like, okay, this is new. This is fresh, you know. There's the clicking uh, of the stick. But it sounds like a clock. You feel the tension. The beats, they had that reggae influence that I wasn't quite used to, you know, and it was all strange sounding.
It seemed like everything had its place. Nothing was wasted. Everything sort of fit so nicely, you know? And I don't think it was based out of analysis. It was more out of emotion, and there was this aggression to it, but it wasn't like the stereotypical aggression of the punk that I was used to listening to. song is such a sing-along, too. <laughs> Being 16, 17, you know, it kind of like sums it all up, you know, how you're feeling at that moment. You know, you're too young to vote, you have really no say, you're just kind of like waiting to, to grow older, you know, to have sort of an influence on, on society. <laughs> It helped me dig deeper and, and try to find my own truth. And I kind of got away from the sort of the macho, punk rock, mosh, slam pit mentality. Without these Fugazi albums, I, I don't know if this band would have the sound that it, that it does. You have to sort of kind of get out of your element and you kind of sort of have to just tap into what you're doing, find a way to make that become transgressive or heavenly or, or hellish. <laughs> Jason Reese on the song that changed his life, Waiting Room by Fugazi. Reese shares frontman duties in the band, and you will know us by the trail of dead. After a break, my interview with Dolly Parton. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International. Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter, thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Jesse Thorne here, proprietor of MaximumFun.org. Look, we had a great time in the Poconos and everything, but there's no way we are forgetting about our annual trip to Lake Arrowhead here in Southern California. So, unless the world ends first by Mayan prophecy, Max FunCon West will be held May 31st through June 2nd, 2013. Join us for a showcase of elite stand-up comedy performers in the woods, plus informative classes and talks from some of the best creative minds in the nation. If you've been to Max FunCon before, get ready to reunite with your old friends. And if you're a first-timer, get ready to make a whole ton of new ones. Registration is now open at MaxFunCon.com. So act fast. Max FunCon pretty much always sells out, and we don't expect this year to be any different. Remember, go to MaxFunCon.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. 
Dolly Parton started her life as one of 12 siblings in a one-room house in the Smoky Mountains of Tennessee. Over her 50-plus year career, she sold more than 100 million albums, built four theme parks, starred in movies, and written for Broadway, not to mention started a charity empire that sent now more than 40 million books to children. There's something distinctly American about her combination of megawatt stardom and down-home charm, and it's all anchored in a truly spectacular talent. Here she is singing one of her greatest hits, Jolene. Jolene, 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 I'm begging of you, please don't take my man. Jolene, 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 please don't take him just because you of auburn hair with ivory skin and eyes of emerald green Your smile is like a breath of spring Your voice is soft like summer rain and I cannot compete with you Jolene Dolly Parton has a new book called Dream More It's really a pleasure to have you on the show Miss Parton Thank you so much for joining us Thank you so much. That took me way back there with Jolene. I've been around a long time, ain't I? Long enough to write a book. (laughs) The other day I was at a thrift store, and I bought a Carter Family CD. And I was listening to it in my car. And the thing that struck me about it was, you know, these these songs recorded, a a lot of them in the the 50s, 40s, 50s, um, was how intensely sad they were how this music was about you know there were there were songs about heaven but heaven really just felt like a sort of a respite (laughs) from from the world and i i wonder if you if you grew up uh listening to music like that i not only grew up listening to it i grew up hearing it from my mother and singing it myself and writing i that kind of stuff. I mean, I've written some of the saddest songs. Some of them say they're plum pitiful, as I always like to say. But that's just the way it is in in the country because a lot of those stories are true, and it's just kind of embedded in your, you know, in your soul somehow. All those old songs and stories. They say that's how people used to carry the news about all those great old stories before the newspapers and all. They'd write about the tragedies in their areas. So I think people really feel like it's happened to them or their family. But I love that old stuff. I've written some of the saddest songs when I was at my happiest. I wonder, you know, I I grew up in the city in the 80s, and um, I I feel like I don't, I don't really understand what it means to have grown up in a family of 12 in, uh, you know, a one-room house in the mountains. Um, What is it that someone like me maybe doesn't understand at first blush about that life? Well, I think when you grow up in the mountains like that, now I was born in a one-room house. As their family started to expand, we did have a couple more rooms. <laughs> you know, we had, we always said we had three rooms and a 
and a path where some have three rooms and a bath. We had the outdoor <laughs> toilet, and we had running water when we'd run and get it, you know, that kind of thing. But uh, it was just the way of life back in the mountains, not just us, but all all the people that had big families are just poor, and you just make do. You don't think about it, and I always tell, you know, if people say, well, how did you have any privacy? I said, well, my favorite story is I said, well, we— had a pan of water, and then we'd had a little curtain that we'd pull, and uh, we would wash up as far as possible, and then we'd wash down as far as possible, and then when the boys cleared the room, we washed possible. So that's kind of, <laughs> that's kind of how I sum it up. <laughs> Was the poverty in your family ever such that that you were afraid? Yes, I remember. We were more afraid because we sensed fear in Mama. Mama always used to get real depressed in the fall of the year, and it was years later that we realized it. But she was just afraid we weren't going to make it through the winter with those old cold houses and all those kids, and if we was going to have enough food or somebody was going to die from pneumonia or, or whatever. So, um, yeah, I remember hearing Mom and Daddy talking and feeling that heaviness, that sadness of thinking— wonder if we are going to make it through the winter. But we did. My daddy was a hard worker. He couldn't read and write, and that's one of the reasons I had wanted to start the Imagination Library and uh, to where we give free books to children is because so many mountain people, country people, don't get an education, and um, but that don't mean they're not smart. My daddy was smart enough to provide for that big house full of young'uns and do all right by us. I want to play a little bit of a song you wrote about your grandfather. Um, this song's called Daddy Was an Old-Time Preacher Man. Yeah. Daddy was an old-time preacher man. He preached the Word of God throughout the land. He preached the plain a child could understand. Yes, Daddy was an old-time preacher man. He told the people of the need to pray He talked about God's wrath and judgment day He preached about that great eternity And he preached hell so hot that you could feel the heat Daddy was an old-time preacher man And Leona would get up to testify As we'd sing in the sweet by and by, then we'd sing, I'm on my way to Canaan's land. Yes, Daddy was an old-time preacher man. Was music part of your <laughs> grandfather's uh, services in preaching? Oh, absolutely. We got the music from my grandpa, from my mother's side of the family. That was my mom's uh, dad. And we were allowed to sing in church. We'd take our guitar, you know, to church, and we'd sing as, you know, the sisters. We used to go around to a lot of churches, different churches, and sing. But my grandpa played guitar. He played the piano. My mama played the guitar. And uh, my aunts and uncles, you know, so especially on mama's side of the family. So music was a big part of it. And my grandpa was a major influence in our lives. Did you ever listen to music on the radio? Oh, yeah. But uh, we didn't have, uh, you know, back in the early days, we weren't 
allowed to use the radio that much. Back in the very early days, we didn't have electricity, and we had a battery radio, and so that only got played for, like, some serious news or trying to get the Grand Ole Opry on Saturday night when it whistled in and out. But, um, but yeah, we, we listened to the radio, but we had more stuff to do than just to listen to the radio, and we didn't want to use up electricity either. My daddy was stingy on top of uh, being a good provider. <laughs> He didn't want us to leave any lights on any longer than we had to or play the radio or any of that stuff, no more than we had to. And it was mostly for for the news and stuff like that. Let's hear a little bit of you singing a song about um, growing up in Tennessee. This is my Tennessee mountain home. Sitting on the front porch on a summer afternoon In a straight-back chair on two legs Leaned against the wall Watched the kids playing With June bugs on string And chased the glowing fireflies When evening shadows fall In my Tennessee mountain home Life is as peaceful as a baby's side such a beautiful song. What, well, thank you. That's a fun song to sing. I always get a kick out of that. That takes me right back home. When you think about growing up, what are the what are the fondest memories that you think of? Well, things like that. Just uh, us just being part of the woods and the trees and the fun things we'd do outside. And uh, just we loved our animals and we always got excited when we was going to get new baby chicks and new baby ducks or new calves were being born, you know, or piglets. And, you know, it's like we... We were part of all that. We were part of the woods and the trees and, and nature. And we people said, well, we, you didn't have toys. What would you play with? I said, we played with each other. We found tons of stuff to do. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Dolly Parton, is a larger-than-life country singer-songwriter, philanthropist, and an American legend. Her new book is Dream More. Celebrate the dreamer in you. You know, your book is called Dream More, and there's a, a little part of it where you talk about having dreams and being hesitant to share them because when you share big dreams, you you expose yourself to the possibility that you won't achieve them. Um, and I wonder when you started to dream of leaving where you grew up and if you told anyone about it at the time. Yeah, I remember starting dreaming that when I was still in grade school, and I told everybody. <laughs> I just <laughs> believed that I was going to do it. I kept saying, I'm going to I'm going to move to Nashville when I, when I get out of school. And uh, even on my graduation night, I mentioned in, in the Dream More book about when I, when they had asked different, the kids, you know, when we were, doing our talk or whatever, our little farewell, uh, they were asking what we were doing. The kids were saying, well, I'm going to be going to so-and-so to college or I'm getting married and moving to so-and-so. And it came to me and I said, well, I'm going to move to Nashville because I'm going to be a country music star. And then everybody laughed. And I was so embarrassed because 
because I was de- I mean I was definite in that, and I thought, well, why are they laughing? And it was only years later that I, I realized that it, they weren't making fun. They just you know wasn't used to people dreaming that big. So I I knew um, I don't even know how how long it was when I believed I was going to do something more. I was still like I say in grammar school, but um, I totally was prepping for it and saving for it and packing for it. You know, the years that I was in high school, because I knew I couldn't leave home till I was 18, my daddy would have sent a posse after me. <laughs> I thought, well, there's no reason to go till after I'm 18. And so that's exactly what I did. Did you know people who were professional entertainers or even just people who had left home and become successes? No. Well, actually, I did know uh, Carl and Pearl Butler, who had... Uh, used to sing on the uh, Kaz Walker show also, the show that I started on years ago. And they had kind of started out, and they had moved on to Nashville, and they had had a, a couple of hits uh, that Don't Let Me Cross Over and If Teardrops Were Pennies and Heartaches Were Gold. So uh, they were they were doing good, so I knew about them. But, it, but, but they hadn't done that when I – they hadn't done that by the time when I had already started dreaming. That was later you know, that they did that and moved to Nashville and did did well. But I just wanted to, I didn't know wh- what all I was going to do. My uncle and I used to, my uncle Bill and I used to go to Nashville when I was in school, you know, grade school and high school. Uh, anytime we could bum enough or save enough money to get a tank of gas, we'd go to Nashville, take songs that we'd written or, and that I'd written or he'd written or we'd written together. And we'd sleep in the car and I'd clean up I'd wash my hair in the service station of uh, bathrooms and cold water and put my makeup on in the in the mirrors on the side of the car or in the so you just do what you do uh, to get those dreams going. What did the rest of your family think about all of this? Well, Mama was so busy with all the kids, and my daddy would have never let me done anything at all if it hadn't been with family. Mama helped a lot. Daddy didn't want me to do none of that because he was afraid something was going to happen to us girls. You know, he's he. It's not that he didn't trust us; he just didn't trust men, or you know, people out there. So if it hadn't been for Mama's brother and Mama covering for me and saying, "Well, it's just Bill. It's Uncle Bill." And so that that helped a lot. But Daddy was not keen on that idea. In fact, it was a long time before my Daddy was comfortable with me being a star. It was only when I decided I was going to get married. He was fine after I married two years later after I moved <laughs> to Nashville. But he couldn't find no comfort till he knew I was safe somewhere. But Mama, she just believed in me, or she just believed me. And she just thought, well, you know, she's going to do it. She's going to do it because she said she's going to do it. And so, sure enough, she was right, and I did it. I, I read that you met your husband on the first day that you were in Nashville. I did. And I met him at a wishy-washy laundromat on Wedgwood Avenue, and um, or a little laundromat. I'd, I'd t- I had taken dirty clothes from, from home in my haste to get there because I graduated on a Friday night, I guess, and got there on Saturday. And he was just out riding around and um, saw me, and he said, that's the girl for me. That's what he told me later. And Two years later, we was married. Now, when when he saw you and said that you were the girl for him, what did you think? I, well, I was just flirting. I was always a big flirt and still am. So I was just 
country girl, and I said, he said something like, you're going to get sunburned out here. And I said, oh, what's it to you? You know, or something to that effect. And we just started talking. And anyway, when he told me uh, what he really said, because I was babysitting at that time. So after I got my laundry, uh, he would, we went back up to the place where I was staying. And then he would come over every day after work and sit at the bottom of the staircase. The folks lived upstairs that I was babysitting for and where I was staying. And uh, so he would stay there. So the, he told me on the first day off, my first day off, that he was going to take me to eat, and he took me over to his mama's house. We walked right into his mama's and daddy's house, and it was supper time. I thought he was taking me out to eat. And uh, he said, this is the girl I'm going to marry. Fix her a plate. And that's when I really thought, well, how dare you? Who do you think you are? I didn't say it. But I thought it. And sure enough, like I say, two years later, we were married. So we got married in 66. We've been married ever since. One of the really amazing things to me about your career is that you are and and always have been a, a spectacularly beautiful singer and a if you'll forgive me for saying it, a really beautiful woman. Oh, well, thank and, you. <laughs> and I think it would have been um, easy for you to let those facts guide your career rather than guiding your career yourself, um, rather than dedicating yourself to, to recording songs that you'd written and to um, building a business around yourself. Um, you could have just been you know, another pop star that, you know, sang on records that other people were driving. And um, I wonder if that was always what you wanted or if it was, if there was a time when you decided to press yourself rather than pop star Dolly Parton. Well, I always wanted to be myself. I always wanted to... uh to do what I felt was right for me, but I knew I had to play certain games. I never compromised my principles and my morals and and what I considered my values uh, to get anywhere. I never slept with anybody to get to any from point A to point B. If I did, if I slept with somebody, it's because I wanted to, not because I was trying to get something out of somebody. But, you know, it was like one of those things to where I knew who I was. I knew um, what my talent was, and I knew that eventually I'd be able to do what I wanted to do. But you have to kind of roll with the punches. You kind of have to compromise uh, to a degree to get done what you need to get done. But I was very happy, you know, when I got to be able to start making choices of my own and choosing things of my own. And I've I've chosen stuff that some would say might not be good or they didn't like that or whatever but I wouldn't change a thing because I needed to try stuff and it's just like when I did my my bluegrass album of the grass is blue and people loved it so well it didn't make any money but it was critically acclaimed and it was like uh, I said then well I had to get rich in order to sing like I was poor again so it's (laughs) almost like they say a, a a rich man can't sing the blues. I disagree with that because I've still got all of that heart and soul and that gut and that Smoky Mountain DNA. And I remember mom and daddy and my life and every feeling I ever had, every heartbreak I've ever had. And that's why I can still write in that way. I think if, uh, you know, so I just knew that eventually I'd get to where I can do as 
I do as I please, and that's pretty much what I do. I still, you still always being in business, you have to, like I say, you have to compromise and you have to be able to bend and sway, but you don't have to bend so far you break. You were on uh, Porter Wagner's television show, which was the biggest country music TV show for, if I remember correctly, seven years um, mm-hmm. in the in the sixties and I, I think into the early seventies. Um, when you decided to leave that show to be a solo performer, you'd also had some big duet hits with Porter Wagner. Um, why did you decide to do that, and, and was it hard? Oh, well, yes, it was very, very, very hard. And I decided to do it because I knew that I didn't want to be just part of somebody else's show. I wanted to be my own star. I wanted to have my own band. I wanted to, you know, to make my own decisions. I didn't want to just be part of something else. I wanted to be part of all that God had for me out there, and I didn't feel like I had... Uh, I was felt like I was running in place, and Porter and I fought like cats and dogs. We were both so stubborn and so headstrong about who we were and what you know what we wanted, and we just bashed heads all the time because I wanted to do my music a certain way. He wanted me to do my music a certain way, and so we really just clashed a lot. And he was always say, "Well, it's my show," and I said, "Yes, you're right." All the more reason I need my own. So it was very, very hard. We, because um, there was a part of me that loved Porter, and there was a part of me that just despised him, and I'm sure he felt the same about me. But that's really uh, when I wanted to leave the show. He made it very hard for me by uh, not wanting me to go and talking too loud and trying to scare me, and that didn't work. And so I thought, well, I got to get away from here, and I've got to do something. He's not listening to me, and that's what inspired me to go home and write. Uh, I will always love you because I said, do what you do best. Write a song. Write your feelings in a song. I wrote it and took it back to Porter's office, and uh, I said, sit down. I got something I want to sing for you. And I sang it, and he started, tears started rolling down his face, and he said, okay, you can leave, but only if I can produce that song. (laughs) So he did produce uh, the record of I Will Always Love You, and that was my leaving song. And uh, and so I went, and look how successful that's been. That was a song that came straight from the heart. I know that you have... Um, brothers and sisters who are musicians as well. And I've actually heard you say that there were other people in your family who were more talented than you were. Um, And I wonder if having that in your family makes you think about the way that um, that chance and sacrifice combined have helped push your career along when... um, you know, other people who are so close to you haven't had the same thing happen with them. I think about that a lot. In fact, I, I talk a lot about that, or I talk some about that in the uh, Dream More uh, book about how I have a a guilt. I have guilt feelings a lot about my success, just because so many of my family is so talented, but didn't seem to get all the same breaks. And who knows what why that happens? You just have to hope for the best and. I still hope that they're 
you know, going to do good. I know a lot of them work at, at Dollywood now in the show, and we're putting together a new show. But, you know, it's like I couldn't make them a star. I couldn't keep them from being a star. Everybody's kind of got to hustle and bustle. You know, you just got to work all the time. You can't lose momentum. It's hard to know. It's hard to say because uh, a lot of people you know, want the success or they want the stardom, but they're not either – able to or willing to go that far from home or to be away from family or they make choices to do other stuff. But um, like you said, or if it's just chance, like you said, whether it's chance or um, in our luck or whatever. And I don't know. It's I, you, you just don't know. And the older I get, the more I look back and I think, well, how did I do all this? And why was you know I the one that got to do so much of it? And I don't know the answer to those questions, except that I know I never stopped working. I still ain't stopped, and I ain't stopping until I keel over somewhere. <laughs> Was having children of your own one of the things that you had to sacrifice to have this career? To be honest with you, it was, because if I'd have had children, I wouldn't be here probably talking to you right now, because I probably would have been a good mother, like... Uh, most of the women in my family are, and, and my dad was like a great dad, and we're very devoted to our children. And if I'd have had kids, um, I mean, I put it on hold, you know, for a while. We were just trying not to have kids then, thinking that we were going to have kids. And by the time it got to be that time, then uh, we didn't have kids. But now we're glad we didn't because uh, now we have each other, my husband and I, and we've got all these nieces and nephews and brothers and sisters and um, all these relatives with their kids that we, you know, we try to help with their schooling or anything else that we can. And we babysit a lot. We take them places. We do stuff with them. But at least we can, when we get sick of them, we can send them home and say, love you. Call mom. <laughs> See you later. But it's those kinds of sacrifices that you do have to make. But I don't regret it. I do not regret any decisions that I've made, because to change one thing would be to change everything, and we can't have that now, can we? I want to play one last song. Um, this comes, I, I think, from your television show, The Dolly Show, um, although I have to say I found it on the Internet and it wasn't labeled. Um, this is you and about 10 members of your direct family singing a song called In the Sweet By and By. Oh, yeah. In the sweet we shall meet on that beautiful shore in the sweet and we shall meet on that beautiful shore there's a land that is paradise and by faith we shall see afar for the such a beautiful song. What does it well, make you think of? <laughs> it makes my heart heavy, and I'm not, I've got tears in my eyes, because that was a special I did. Um, I think it was one of the specials, and I had my family on. Mom and Daddy was, I think, probably in that group of people. Yeah, they're sitting right next to you. Several of my brothers and sisters, and um, so 
that song we used to always sing, my sisters and I used to sing that in church as special singing, but we also used to sing that as congregational singing too. So it makes me think of mom and daddy and all my brothers and sisters and my grandpa Jake has been dead for years now. Mom and dad's been gone for quite a while. So that uh, is kind of touching to me. Well, Miss Parton, I, I sure appreciate you taking the time to be on our show. It was it was really it was really a joy to get to talk to you. Well, thank you so much, and uh, hope you get a copy of my new book. Oh, I enjoyed it. Dolly Parton's <laughs> new book is <laughs> Dream More. Thank you. Every week on Bullseye, we close the show with a recommendation from yours truly. It's The Outshot. One of my favorite books is what you probably call a coffee table book. It's big. It's full of lists and graphics and jokes. It's got a red cover. But sometimes I'm a little hesitant to put it on my coffee table because the title of this book is Ego Trip's Big Book of Racism. I have some concerns about what my guests might assume. Unless the guests in question are fans of Ego Trip, the 90s hip-hop magazine, the odds are they'd have to pick the thing up and read it, to, you know, to get it. But if they did pick it up, they'd probably love it. Here's what you get in the pages of Ego Trip's Big Book of Racism. An almanac of notable places in the history of American racism, like the former headquarters of the Aryan Nations outside of Hayden Lake in Utah. Or Old Comiskey Park, home of Disco Demolition Night, where rock fans lit a funeral pyre of black and gay disco records. Or Rock Springs, Wyoming, where in 1885, citizens lit their city's Chinatown on fire, killing 28 Chinese miners. You can plan a road trip. In the section titled Lights, Camera, Affirmative Action, you'll find a list of memorable Mexicans as played by Puerto Rican actors. My personal favorite is Luis Guzman in the Limey, if you're keeping track. Over in the sports section, there's a lengthy investigation of whether blacks are really better at athletics. And alongside that report, you can find a list. It's called White Men Who Can Jump and Dunk, too. On that list, Pau Gasol, Dirk Nowitzki, and, this is a quote, Them Flubber Cats. And it's true. Flubber is powerful stuff. There's even a rap about how Asians crossed a land bridge in populated North America, which is to be recited to the beat and cadence of the M.C. Shan classic, The Bridge. Alas, there is no anti-land bridge response record from KRS-One. Basically, the big book of racism is what happens when a bunch of brilliant, hilarious folks from pretty much every ethnicity under the sun get together and start talking mess about race. It's all the great stuff about the hip-hop generation wrapped between two covers one of which has a huge picture of a bundle of TNT on it. So, if you read one coffee table book about racism this year, make it Ego Trip's Big Book of Racism. Just make sure that anyone who sees it in your house or on your coffee table opens it up and reads a bit, too. That's my outshot. That's it for this week's Bullseye. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer, Julia Smith. Our editor, Nick White. Our intern, Lindsay Pavlis. Our thanks this week to engineers Manoli Weatherall at NPR's New York Bureau and Marcus Parks at CaveComedyRadio.com. Our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team. Our thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off.
Bullseye is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. Support for this program comes from this station and public radio international stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation. PRI Public Radio International.